You could pick one variable in the whole world that you had to understand that would be like your go-to indicator. Inflation would be the thing to me. I mean, you tell me what the rate of inflation is in 20 years, I'll tell you pretty much what most financial assets have done, whether it's Bitcoin, bonds, stocks, whatever. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am now using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And you know what? We're coming up to a year and I've still not sold a single sat through Gemini. I am only buying Bitcoin. I am a hodler. That's all I'm doing. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined training view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did, all you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have my new sponsor to the show, which is Level, a company finally delivering on the promise of a Bitcoin bank. Yes, a bank on your phone where you can deposit, spend, and hold Bitcoin. And you can also do this alongside a traditional dollar checking account. You can deposit your payroll into your account as a US user, and you can even spend your Bitcoin from your account via your MasterCard debit card. I have been testing it out. I've been playing with the app, and it is everything I've ever wanted from personal banking. And there's so many more updates coming. They've got some big updates coming in February, so keep an eye out for that. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to go and check it out, please head over to Level, which is lvl.co, or search for Level, which is LVL, in the Google or Apple app stores. Also, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are well into the football season, and you know what? Things are going all right. It's been a pretty good season so far for Liverpool. Tottenham struggling as ever. We always like it that way. Now, if you are interested in football, if you do want to make a bet, and if you want to use your Bitcoin, then sportsbet.io is the place to go. But they don't just cover football. They also cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S bet.io forward slash promotions. Next up is Compass Mining and Compass aren't just a sponsor. I'm a customer of theirs and I am mining Bitcoin with them. Do you know I've been mining for over three months with them now? I mined about 0.4 Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. I'm going to try and do updates on this every month. But with the price of where Bitcoin is, I'm approaching having, I think about a third of my mining equipment paid off. I love that I'm mining again because Compass has made it accessible to anyone as a Bitcoiner to get out there and start mining and contribute to the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded and anyone can do it. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility and Compass does everything else for you. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to start mining, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Morning, Con. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Awesome. Thank you. In New York. Yeah, man. Well, thank Fun. you for coming in for this. Yeah, for sure. You too. 
Well, you, I mean, you probably came further than I did. Yeah, but I've got a whole bunch of interviews. I've got <laughs> thank you for our gift. Oh yeah, I uh, we were double Peter shifting today. We're gonna. My, uh, I want the audience to note that my shift is bigger than than Peter's shift. So <laughs> bring that in a bit closer. Um, that's. I think that's going to start a meme now. And I, I, I can imagine about a year I'm going to be traveling with a fucking case of Peter Schiff photos <laughs> all up over the wall. Uh, I'm so glad to talk to you. I really want to talk to you. Uh, I like to have a range of people on the show, uh, people who support Bitcoin, to people who are anti-Bitcoin, and people who understand different forms of economics. And I, I want to learn from everyone. And uh, I was trying to understand a little bit more about Austrian economics. And as I told you, I did a search for critics of Austrian economics. And I found an article that you've put together. In fairness, it was back in 2013, but uh, it brought us some interesting points. And uh, so I reached out to you and, and here we are. But I want to talk to you about a few things. I want to talk to you about inflation for mm -hmm. sure. I do want to talk to you about Austrian econ. Uh, I want to talk to you about the economy at the moment because we're in a fucking wild place, man. Yeah. So yeah, uh, where should we start? <laughs> uh, God, let's, let, let's start with inflation. I feel like it's the the topic of the day, right? Yeah. So I I listened to a show you did on uh, Preston Pish's network mm -hmm. discussing inflation, and it was super useful to me because I I feel like sometimes Bitcoiners are very quick to jump on inflation. Sometimes almost in a celebrate in a celebratory kind of way, even though it's shit for people. Yeah. But is in a ha. Huh, we were right. Mm -hmm. um, but your key point was that like not all inflation is down just to the money printing, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the really, like the almost, I think one of my almost like most frightening discoveries of the last like 10 to 15 years. And I, I focus on inflation so much in my career because so for people who don't know I'm a financial manager so manage people's portfolios and to me understanding inflation if you could pick one variable in the whole world that you had to understand that would be like your go-to indicator inflation would be the thing to me because it I mean you tell me what the rate of inflation is in 20 years I'll tell you pretty much what most financial assets have done whether it's bitcoin bonds stocks whatever um so I'm hyper-focused on inflation and not, I think a lot of people approach inflation from a very politicized perspective. And they'll argue that inflation is going to do this because uh, for the most part, people are either pro-government or anti-government. And so they kind of take like a hardline stance. And I've spent most of my life trying to find like the nuance there. And the, the really like, I think, jarring discovery for me is that nobody really understands what causes inflation. Like the really simple theory, obviously, is more money, you know, same amount of goods, you're going to get higher prices. But the reality is that it's a fuckload more complex than that. And we see that in especially like developed world countries like Japan in the last 20 years, where you have a lot of like weird things going on in the Japanese economy that despite the fact that they've created, you know, an economy now that has three, 400% debt to GDP, they seem to have, you know, printed just incredible amounts of money and they still have virtually 0% inflation. And so I think the conclusion that a lot of people have come to is that, well, it's a lot more complex than just the money printing aspect of it. And there's all these other things that come into play, like demographics and inequality and all these other sort of like somewhat subjective measures that make it really hard to measure inflation and understand what's going to cause it. But 
you know, to your point, I think, you know, I talked to Pomp in April of 2020, and I, the Bitcoiners were right that the government response to everything that happened during COVID was going to cause inflation. And so, you know, like looking at the price of Bitcoin today, I mean, I'm still shocked at the the rate of change that has occurred, but the fact that it's gone up a lot is not super shocking. Um, you know, I would say, I mean, God, the rate of change in virtually everything has been somewhat shocking, even like the stock market and um, whatnot. But, but yeah, the Bitcoiners were right, I think, because in this specific instance, I think it was the government response. And this was something that I was saying at the time, the government response was so big and it was so different. I mean, I, I kind of, I mean, I cut my teeth in the inflation world and really like trying to apply all this during the financial crisis. And mm-hmm. a lot of like my understandings of this come out of the financial crisis and the government's response. And my basic conclusion coming out of the financial crisis was the Fed's doing a lot of weird stuff, but really the Treasury's not doing a lot of stuff. And to me, that's the the, the money printing that occurs in the economy is very different between those two types of entities. And in my opinion, it's the treasury that really has the money printer. And coming out of the financial crisis, you didn't have a huge treasury response. This time around, it was totally different. And so I think that's a big part of why we've gotten the, the rate of inflation that we have. So it's a weird thing. Inflation is different in in everyone's personal instance. It's different in every country's instance. So, you know, the rate the way that a big government policy or inflation dynamics would would affect like the United States are totally different than, you know, like if Zimbabwe printed trillions of dollars like the United States, well, it would have a totally, totally different impact because their economy is totally different. So it's, it's another variable that just makes understanding inflation so difficult and predicting it virtually impossible, which is you know, from a government policy perspective is sort of frightening because you can get into situations where you have people that are, you know, dictating policy and doing things that could cause things that they literally cannot predict and, you know, are are just potentially a lot more catastrophic than people think. Right. Okay. I think it'd be really useful to try and look at the formula for inflation, even though we can't define which factors, you know, come together to, to affect it the most. But to understand the things that would go into a formula, yeah. the different things that could do it. I think we should start even simpler, though. Like, if somebody said to you, like, what is inflation? How do you define that? Well, I mean, from a, a really textbook definition, the definition of inflation is the, the rate of change of a basket of goods and services. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really vague to some degree, but a lot of this, you know, like I've studied the Bureau of Labor Statistics approach to CPI and stuff. And, you know, I used to be like for background when I graduated, I actually was a pretty like hardcore Austrian econ guy, you know, so I'm, and I'm still like, a, am obviously like a hyper, I wrote a book called Pragmatic Capitalism. So yep. I'm obviously like kind of a hyper capitalist, but like, I also like, I started studying a lot of this stuff because like. If, if you want to understand inflation, you've got to understand the way that the BLS measures it. Because places like, like bond traders, like all these guys trading bonds down here, they don't give a shit 
about the shadow stats measure of inflation. They don't care about the Chapwood index or your alternative index. They care about the CPI because the CPI is the index that the government dictates all of their policy off of. It's the the indicator that the Fed dictates all of their policies off of. So you have to understand the way that they measure it. And measuring inflation through a basket of goods is really messy. Well, this is why I asked you, because as you said before, Inflation is really subjective to you as the individual. Yeah. Um, the inf- just my sense, like in the UK, it's not hitting us as hard as it's in in the US. So even between trips, I'm noticing things getting massively more expensive. But I, I suspect there's different things at play. So for example, my flights are super expensive right now coming over. My flight to Miami was probably double what I paid early in the year. But I don't think that's inflation. I think that's the... Uh, industry responded to coming out of COVID Mm -hmm. and trying to fill their planes but not filling up their routes. But I have noticed, it doesn't matter where I go for dinner or lunch, like buying a sandwich and a coffee seems super expensive. Yeah, it's way more. I'm trying to buy a house at the moment. That feels super expensive. So this 6.2% rate we're seeing, I do not believe, for me, it's 6.2%. I think here in the US, when I'm spending money, I think it's 15 to 20% year on year. Yeah, well, I mean... To somebody who's trying to buy a home right now, you know, or if you're renting, I mean, it probably even feels higher because like you're, I mean, for a lot of people, you're waiting in shelter. Like for instance, the BLS rates that the the shelter waiting in the CPI is, it's something like 32% or something. And that's obviously, that's not true for everybody. Like for a lot of people, it's probably a lot higher than that. If you live in New York City, I'll bet it's a hell of a lot higher than that. Um, so it's super personal, but also like in the United States, like I live in California where it's virtually impossible to build a house because the regulatory system is so jacked up and Californians are consistently complaining about, oh, house prices are too high. You know, what do we do? And it's like the obvious answer is, well, you build more houses, like let people, let builders build more houses. And it's really hard to build a house in California because it's expensive and the regulations are are crazy and there's, you know, endless hurdles to jump through. So you have this like really unique supply constraint problem inside of California where there's literally not enough houses. And so the inflation in California real estate is different than the real estate inflation in, say, Arizona, which is, you know, right next door. I know builders who, friends of mine, who have left the state of California to go move their businesses to Arizona to just to be able to build houses because they can walk into the building department, show the guy a piece of paper, and the guy will put a stamp on it. And they'll walk out and go build a house. Whereas in California, it's like this big back and forth. So you get all these like weird, unique, you know, aspects of inflation like that that are really unique to not just locations, but people and things like that. Right. Okay. So let, let's let's talk through the different elements. And let's talk about the money printer itself, the, yeah. the growth in the money supply. The M and T people would say, we talked about those before. Uh, growing the money supply is fine as long as you keep inflation under control. And I, my expectation that somebody who doesn't understand economics is that a gradual increase in the money supply is okay. We've seen a huge increase in the money supply over the last year, maybe two years, yeah. and all the Bitcoiners and the Austrian economists predicted inflation would come and. Inflation is hitting. So while sometimes it's hard to predict and it's nuanced, is it is there a certain amount of 
know, expanding the money supply that will almost certainly lead to uh, uh, inflation? Or is it combined with something else? Yeah, well, I mean... Like, it, is it combined with coming out of COVID and there's a sudden uh, uh, supply, uh, demand shock? Yeah, I mean, COVID's unique because there are, I mean, there definitely are, like, I think a lot of liberal economists right now would argue that this is mostly a supply constraint thing. I'd argue it's mostly a fiscal policy thing that, you know, we we printed a lot of money, we created a lot of demand. And yeah, I mean, there's weird stuff happening with like, you know, the LA ports, but like, if the demand wasn't so high, you wouldn't have problems in the LA ports. The LA ports would be empty or, you know, at half capacity. So, you know, the two are interconnected to some degree, but like, you know, it's interesting, you know, using the word money to me is, it's a weird thing to talk about because, I think in the last like 15 years, the definition of money has become, you know, somewhat subjective because like coming out of the financial crisis, for instance, this was a point I made really repetitively, almost to the point where I wanted to blow my own brains out. But like the Fed, technically, they create something we call money reserves, okay? Mm -hmm. So when they do QE, quantitative easing, they create money and they essentially swap a, a bond for reserves, okay? So keeping things really simple, the Fed expands their balance sheet and they go out into the market and they buy existing private sector bonds or government bonds, I mean, and they literally are swapping the balance sheets. And so something that I tried to emphasize coming out of the financial crisis was, well, if the treasury isn't doing anything, if the treasury isn't expanding their balance sheet and spending more, then there's just, there's an outstanding balance of bonds so when the Fed comes in and expands their balance sheet and swaps those two assets, well, what happens? From a technical perspective, you have fewer bonds in the private sector and you have more money. Do you have more financial assets though? You know, so it's almost like, it's a weird thing because the Fed takes these bonds out of the economy. They put them, the Fed's balance sheet for practical purposes is like a black hole. It might as well not exist. Like they have, theoretically, the Fed has, you know, hundreds of gazillions of dollars on their balance sheet in theory. But in reality, what the way that the Fed mostly operates is they expand their balance sheet and then they do these asset swaps. And there, there's lots of debate about, you know, how impactful those asset swaps are. Is there, you know, do they cause asset inflation? Do they make people chase, you know, riskier assets, things like that, which is a totally valid debate. But from a really technical perspective of the way that we define things like money, all they've done is they've swapped what is in reality a checking account with a savings account, you know? And it's it's one of these things where, you know, think about it from your own perspective. If, when you swap a checking account for a savings account in your own financial life, you know, $100 for $100, do you think of yourself as having more money? You know, it's, so you get into these like silly debates about what is money? Is government, are government bonds money-like? Um, so you get kind of caught up in these debates where, you know, for me, it's much more useful to look at money as existing on this like scale of moneyness. Okay. So I like to think of money as, you know, there's, there's things like bank deposits and reserves that, or physical cash that are, these things are hyper money-like. I mean, you can walk into virtually any store in the world with a dollar and use a deposit or, or physical cash to buy something. Um, a treasury bill, it's a little 
you know, further up on the spectrum where it's it's more difficult to use a treasury bill to buy things. But I mean, for instance, the guys that are, you know, all around us on Wall Street, they use treasury bills and treasury bonds to buy other stuff, collateralize and, you know, buy other stuff all the time. So you have this weird market where, you know, you can use T-bills in a very money-like sense in other financial markets. Bitcoin, is, is Bitcoin money? Where would it fit on a scale of moneyness? Well, I mean, increasing, <laughs> increasingly, it's becoming a lot more money-like because it's becoming more widely accepted as a medium of exchange in places. So, you know, its moneyness is increasing over time, but it's still, it doesn't have, I would argue, the same level of moneyness that like a physical dollar does. Um, but you get into all these debates about, you know, the the level of moneyness of something and, or the scale of moneyness of something. And it's weird. In some environments, some things have more moneyness than others. Like treasury bonds become hyper money-like when the shit hits the fan. So typically when things go really badly in the economy, the demand for treasury bonds increases because people want to hold that thing that is basically a really safe uh, savings account, basically, as a, relative to other financial assets in the world. And so- As long as the US doesn't default. Right. Yeah. So assuming, but I mean, in, in today's world, you know, the, the treasury bond market is just by default because mainly because all the other bond markets are shit. Um, <laughs> it, it's by default, the dominant bond market, just because on a relative basis, you know, what's going to compete with it? Mm -hmm. There, there are no Euro bonds really. Um, Chinese bonds, who the hell would trust, you know, government-issued Chinese bonds the, to the same degree the Treasury bonds would? Yen or, you know, yen and uh, Japanese government bonds, close, but still not nearly the same size and quality. I mean, and this is, you know, one of the interesting things that, you know, the points I like to make about Treasury bonds is I think sometimes people think Treasury bonds and things like that are, you know, have value because, they're backed by the government or the military. And I kind of think that's silly. It's no, it's literally because the US government just happens to be the entity that can tax the most output in the world. So it's a it's a function of the productivity and the gross you know, output of the capitalist system in the United States that makes treasury bonds valuable. Right. It makes the dollar valuable, really. You know, there it's not the other way around. The, the dollar isn't valuable because the government is great and because the government, you know, has a great big military. It's the opposite way around. The, the dollar is valuable because, specifically because the people that use the dollar to invest and build things have created a lot of value that has created a lot of demand for the dollar. Right. So, so, so how do we measure the growth of money supply? <laughs> Sounds like you can't. Really? It's it's hard. I mean, yeah. I mean, using something like, you know, coming out of the financial crisis or um or even COVID. I mean, you can look at I think you can look at the way that the government is responding to things like that and you can measure at least to some degree, you know, the rate of change of these things. So, for instance, in um in 2008-2009, the government as a whole, meaning the Treasury and the Fed combined, their policies weren't nearly as big as I think a lot of people thought they were. Um, they were they were big, but they're nothing compared to like the COVID response. So, you know, like the Treasury's recovery package was like $800 billion in 2008, which was, you know, by size in that time, 
seemed like a big number, but <laughs> not we now. Just, we just spent like you know we ran deficits of seven trillion dollars over the last two years. You know these are these are huge huge numbers. So you know, measuring it is really imprecise because it's just you get all these like you know like M one went up a lot like a year ago. And part of that was just literally the Fed changing part of the definitions of the way they define savings deposits. And so you had this like numerical increase in M1 that for practical purposes was literally changing a checking account and a savings account the way that they define it. Um, but I mean, looking at things like M2 is at least a somewhat useful measure because it, when you combine it, when you look at the government in totality and you understand, okay, well, the U.S. Treasury really did, we really did print $7 trillion of new financial assets. Mm. That's real. You know, if you, it's almost cleaner to look at Treasury bonds as money because then you can look at the size of the deficit in government debt and you can say, you know, in a pretty clean model, you know, let's say that without, let's say that the Fed didn't come in and monetize the bonds. And let's just say that like the Fed wasn't a thing the treasury comes in and literally finances their their spending by printing actual money you know like the, mm. the literal money printer is actually in the US treasury you know the bureau of engraving and mint that's where the actual money printing is done the fed's kind of this like back actor who you know gets a lot of airplay but like it's the, to me the treasury is the one that you know they're the real bazooka holder and if you look at government spending and deficits and government debt through the lens of, of viewing government bonds as basically money, there's no measure through which you can argue that we didn't print a ton of financial assets or print a ton of money in the last two years. Do, do the Fed and the Treasury work closely together or are they completely separate entities with separate remits? And they Super close. Super close. Super close. So, I mean, technically the Fed is part of the Treasury from okay. a legal perspective. Um, so... Like a lot of their actions are coordinated and a lot of it in a weird way is um, a lot of it is kind of weird hocus pocus to some degree because it's like the treasury will run, you know, a huge deficit in year one and the Fed will come in and legally because we define the Fed as like this independent entity, they're not technically supposed to be able to buy the bonds. Like they can't finance the government's debt directly, but- the treasury will, you know, run an auction and the primary dealers who all work for the Fed will buy the bonds and then the Fed will buy the bonds from the primary dealers. And it's like, you know, have we kind of just created this like weird legal distinction of like, you know, the Fed being independent where like if you look at it from a really like nuanced operational perspective, like, yeah, they kind of look independent, but really they're not. And if you actually consolidated them and combined them, you can see that a lot of their actions are just, they're really, you know, they're really cohesive. How much does economic growth play into inflation? So if we were in a period where, say, there wasn't a massive increase in the money supply, but can economic growth itself drive inflation? It feels like it, sh it, it, it should because it's Yeah, I mean, demand, they, right? they correlate. You know, like this is one thing, and this is a, a point I often make to to Bitcoin, mainly Bitcoin maximalists who argue about the deflationary aspects of Bitcoin that, to me, money is actually mostly credit, okay? Mm -hmm. So, like, in the United States, the money supply 
is mostly controlled by banks. So I could walk into a bank down the road and I can take out a loan. And when that loan is created, that loan creates a deposit. And I can take that deposit, which was literally just created out of thin air by this bank, and I can go buy whatever I want with it. That's the dominant way in which money is created in the United States. And so it's not a, I wouldn't call it, a, it's not a decentralized system, but it is, it's fragmented in a way that the private sector banking system has a certain amount of control on the money supply that in my opinion is a good, a pretty good way of managing things relative to like, you know, the alternative is having like the Federal Reserve be the only bank in the country. You know, so you would literally go to like a bureaucrat to get a loan if you wanted. And that, that's, that gets a, re, becomes a really messy process because it's, you know, obviously it's like highly politicized. And um, whereas when you walk into JP Morgan, as shitty of a bank as JP Morgan might be, the guy on the other side of the loan processing desk there, he's looking at it from a pure money-making perspective. It's a very market-based money-creating type of system, the loan creation process. And so, um, but the, the kicker, like with your question is that the majority of economic growth is a function of credit growth. So like in the United States, the majority of money that exists is really just real estate based. People take out mortgages to buy homes, to build homes. I mean, there's this really like weird, strong argument that the U.S. economy in a lot of ways is basically just a big real estate market. And when the real estate market goes to shit, the whole economy goes to shit. But which, which we saw. Yeah. But the kicker with that is that when it's compared to or combined with the, the way that the credit markets work, well, the majority of what's happening with the money supply and credit is mostly just people borrowing to buy and build homes. And so the money supply, in a sense, it's it's kind of always expanding because credit's always expanding, because there's you know, the, the, one of the nice things about having an elastic money supply, elastic meaning that like it can mm-hmm. grow and contract, is that if, if Peter's got all the money in the world and I have none, but I want to build a house and I'm pretty good at building houses, I can go to a bank and maybe I can convince the banker to give me a loan, which will create money, which will allow me to build and finance this house. And when we're all done, I'll have a loan that I need to pay back over time, but I'll have a real financial asset that I've just built. We have this house in the economy that is a totally endogenous asset that it it provides real value to the the economy and it it's something that is it's a real asset that's that's generating real demand for money and backing the supply of money that exists. So, you know, it's one of these things where like in my example there, the money supply has technically increased because the supply of loans and deposits has increased. But, you know, is that necessarily going to be inflationary? That's, you know, again, it's a, it's a weird question because we've created real assets that support the money. Um, but we've also created a system where the new loan has created demand for you know, things like lumber and concrete and building materials that otherwise didn't exist. Um, So there's, it depends. I mean, like in the long run, my argument would be, you know, a credit-based system like this, does it need to be inflationary? It doesn't need to be, 
But it is predominantly because the process of building that home is a messy one. It's the supply constraints are messy. And in the long run, um, you've got an expanding money supply that will result in more demand than we would have otherwise had that, you know, I think a low or moderate rate of inflation in an economy is not necessarily a sign of dysfunction to me, um, especially in a credit-based system like we have. The, the thing where you can get, you know, a dangerous situation is when the government as a huge credit creator, they can get involved in a way that you could collapse the whole system if they tried hard enough. Because that's the other thing. The government isn't competitive in the same sense that you and I are. When I go out and I build that house, I'm hypersensitive about the cost of things mm -hmm. and the, the productive way in which I'm going about that whole process. Whereas the government, in a lot of cases, they'll say, well, California needs more homes. So why don't we just print a trillion dollars and send it to California and let people go, you know, go crazy with the money? That's a totally different process than like a competitive bidding process. And that's where... That's where a lot of this gets really messy. And governments are big and obviously, you know, very involved in the economy in a lot of ways. And so do we do we get a crash because we end up with too much credit in the system? We are, and, and essentially we have a blow off the top, too much credit, not enough to be paid back. And has the economy suffered from the fact that it feels like the government doesn't want to allow crashes to happen? That's the feeling I get. Yeah. They constantly want to kick the can down the road because it's there's no political capital capital in the bus part of a boom and bust cycle. Yeah. And it feels like we're not allowing the bus to happen. Mm -hmm. Whereas this credit expansion feels like that's the boom. It takes me back to the Ray Dalio video, like how the economic machine works. Yeah. But you know, we have you know, we have credit, we have debt, but the debt never seems to have to be paid back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, like uh like I always like to point out, you know, liabilities are just the other side of assets. So, you know, balance sheets balance. And in the long run, what you hope will happen is that, you know, I'll build that house. The asset side increases. I still have the liability. I have the mortgage or whatever, the, the loan that I took out. So from a balance sheet perspective, my balance sheet should balance. But you would hope over time that the demand, the value of my home increases so that, you know, we end up with net worth basically, or, or who knows, maybe I pay down some of the loan over time and we end up with some, you know, residual net worth because of that or something. But what can happen a lot of the times is, and this is, I think, a valid argument in an environment like this, where, especially when the government is so involved, you create a lot of demand for the value or even, you know, the, the excessive borrowing of things where people then bid up things in a sense where, yeah, in the long run, the value of homes are very, very likely to increase because the, and the, frankly, the balance sheets are likely to increase in the long run because that's just the way the economy works. I mean, look at any long enough time horizon of, of assets and liabilities, they both increase. Like people are always saying to me, oh, you know, there's going to be a credit crash because private sector liabilities are so huge. And it's like, well, look at the other side of the balance sheet. The assets are also really huge. So that's just, you know, that's just a function of the the basics of double entry bookkeeping that the assets and liabilities will grow. The worrisome thing is when you get environments kind of like today where the asset side grows a lot, you know, at a rate that is unsustainable. And you get into an environment where I think there's valid arguments that, you know, what if real estate falls by you know, what if the price of real estate falls by 20%? Well, everything financed inside of the last like 18 months potentially you know, goes mm -hmm. underwater all of a sudden because we're financing a lot of this based on valuations of today. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, you get these like in the long run, the trend is likely to look like this, but in the short term, you can get these like hyper, you know, volatile environments where you see price increases like the, you know, the the run up to the financial crisis or, you know, increasingly it looks like there's a lot of valid arguments that, you know, real estate stocks, there's a lot of weird shit going on today where things, I think, you know, things feel weird. They think things feel mispriced to some degree. And I don't know about mm-hmm. how much, I have no idea, but it feels like that, that, you know, people have- you Certainly know, like in I, the S&P. It's a straight line up. Straight line with up. With a couple of dips. Well, and a lot of weird shit. Like when you start like peeling back the layers of that, like, um, it's funny, I was sitting at dinner last night and we were talking about, with a client of mine, and I was talking about GameStop and it's like, pull up a chart of GameStop and look at it. And it's like, this chart is flat and then it goes, you know, just straight up, like four or 500% or something. And then it just sits there. And it's incre- It's one of the most incredible charts in the market today because in, a, in an efficient market hypothesis world, that should not happen. Mm-hmm. Like it's that's almost impossible in an efficient market world. And so, but that's this has been going on for like a year. And so, and there's a lot of stuff like that where it just, you know, things went up in value and have just sort of stayed there, where you kind of like, you know, almost feels like the cartoon of like Wiley e. Coyote, where it's like he's run off the cliff and he's just like his legs are spinning, and it's like, when's he gonna is he gonna fall? Well, do PE ratios even matter anymore? I don't know. I, I mean, God, you're getting into like stock market values, you, you get into, God, getting into the valuation of like any asset class. Like do bond valuations make sense today in a world where interest rates are, you know, what, one and a half percent on a 30-year bond and inflation is 6%? Like, does that make sense? Do, you know, does the stock market trading at, you know, levels that are, you know, by a lot of measures close to like the 2000 ratio does that make sense? Like you could get into like the Bitcoin's one of the most interesting things to try to value in my view because it's like, you know, how the fuck do you how do how do you value something that doesn't have cash flows? Like coming from a traditional finance yeah. perspective, for me, it's like my head kind of explodes when I try to build valuation models for Bitcoin because I'm like, I, I don't know, I don't know how to like where to even start with that. We're gonna come to Bitcoin because I really want to know your position, but I'm gonna guess it for well, I've got a theory on your Bitcoin position. But um, if we, I've, I've lived through a, a few crashes in my life. We've had the 2008 financial crisis, which was, you know, something I, I lived through. I bought a house, I think two months before the crash happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived through the dot-com crash and I vaguely remember Black Monday. I think that was like, was that like late 80s or 90s? I can't remember. Yeah. I, but these things have happened. 87, I think. If we get a crash in the next year, or five years, whatever. If we get one, I'm not going to be surprised. I don't think anyone's going to be surprised. It's going to happen. Go, well, of course it was going to happen because look at all the weird shit happening. But how much are you worrying about a crash? And, and do you think we're on the verge of one? Or, or do we, we're in such a weird position now with like the Fed, the, the Treasury and the government that they're doing everything as they can possibly can to prevent any crash? And almost, one more thing to throw in there, I almost feel like there's a game of chicken happening between the US and the China and China at the moment because everything around Evergrande itself is weird. Mm-hmm. Everything there. The the how much of the Chinese market is now uh, propped up by uh, overinflated house prices is also weird. 
And it feels like there is a game of chicken. Like, who's going to crash first? Yeah. There's a lot I in mean, that. <laughs> crashes. I, I mean, I... Predicting those sorts of, like, outlier events to me is just, you know, it's such a crapshoot. Like, I'm... Like, from a... From an asset management perspective, I'm I'm actually a really boring guy. I'm mm-hmm. I'm basically I default to the view that okay, look at the existing you know the outstanding quantity of you know world financial assets, and that gives you a rough approximation of what your personal allocation should be to stuff. Um, so, you know, like right now, it's like like if you look at like stocks and bonds and real estate, it's roughly like a third, a third, a third, um, which to me. Stocks and bonds, real estate, and and stocks, bonds, and real estate. Oh, okay. So a third, a third, a third. Which to me, like if you look at all of the outstanding like assets in the world, like that kind of covers all your bases. If you own a home, you have a bunch of like safe, liquid cash and bonds, and then you've got some stocks. Like that covers a lot of your bases there. So just starting from a and I'm starting from like a very okay. traditional finance. I was going to say, but what about? And I would stick Bitcoin and gold together for the sake of this argument. What about like hard assets like that? Yeah, so they kind of. I would kind of put those into like the real estate bucket. Okay. So all the real stuff. Okay. Um, hard assets. I think together. you can kind of like, and that would roughly work out to like a third. So you can kind of, you know, like I'm, I mean, I'm being a little loose with all this, but like. My point is that, like, from a diversification perspective, the more diversified you are, the the more all-weather your portfolio is, meaning that you can – you don't have to worry about is the market going to crash next year because you've got buckets for each of this these things that – the types of environments that will potentially protect you from – an inflation, a deflation, a recession, or, or just like a slow growth period. So my 95% Bitcoin is slightly <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I, if I was, uh, I mean, from a very like personalized position, I don't know. Like maybe you've got some stuff going on that totally justifies that. I don't, I have no idea. But uh, probably, Gotta have skin in the game. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't. I have a terrible I mean, for me, for, for me, for me, I tried, I'm not a maximalist of anything. That's yeah. kind of like my default, which I know some people are going to be like, oh, that's so boring. And Yeah, but you're managing people's money. Right. Like yeah. I'm a fiduciary. Like I'm yeah. responsible for other people's money. So when somebody comes to me and is like, should I put 95% of my money in Bitcoin? I'm like, well, you know, if Bitcoin fell by 80% in the next three years, how would you feel? You know, and for, for the vast majority of people, you like you, you might have a totally different situation where you can live through that and you know depending on your personal finances like that might be a totally sustainable drawdown for you and it obviously has been at some point right i mean you've gone through and benefited from big declines and that's well actually i mean i wasn't 95% what happens is the the market's done a yeah well, five, it grows six so much. X. you get so, into a whole other yeah, debate about so that's changed my yeah, so that— But I, ha- I, I hold no stocks and no bonds. So I own real estate and Bitcoin. Well, so that's a really that's a really interesting discussion with everything that's happened in Bitcoin in the last couple of years because you get this— Like, for somebody that has a really boring risk profile even, and I'd start from, like, a financial planning-based perspective when I work with people, and if you built even a relatively boring asset allocation in Bitcoin of, like, you know, say 10%, two, three years ago, 
what's that position now relative to all your other stuff? It's probably way over 50%. Uh So you've got this like portfolio skew because of the outperformance of Bitcoin in your portfolio that, you know, depending on who you are, maybe that's totally fine. I have friends who who that has literally happened to, and they're totally fine with that, obviously, you know, super happy. But Mm -hmm. if you're... If you're 65 years old and you're retired and you are living on like a fixed income and you, you know, let's say maybe you've got some health issues or something like that and you need some, you know, balance in your portfolio and you need things to be somewhat stable, well, all of a sudden you've got this 50% allocation in a portfolio that it fucks a lot of things up potentially. It can do. <laughs> I like the roller coaster. So, I mean, which is for certain people, especially like, you know, I say for for people under the age of like the lazy rule in traditional finance is like put your age in bonds, and I'm I've always been like that's stupid. Like it actually, if you're under the age of like 55, it probably makes no sense to own any bonds because you have you just don't have the need for that amount of of insulation from. To me, bonds are basically um, they're protection from deflation mostly. Um, and so bonds typically do well in a deflationary environment. So looking at like, I don't know if you're familiar with like the Harry Brown portfolio, but like nope. he was famous for building this like really simple all-weather portfolio where it was basically four quadrants where you owned cash, treasury bonds, gold, and stocks. And those were your four quadrants. You put them in 25% allocations, set it and forget it, and it protected you from all different uh, weather environments basically. Cash was there for a recession, basically. Bonds were there for deflation. Your gold is there for inflation. And your stocks are there for growth periods. And so you kind of covered all your bases with this really simple, boring portfolio. And, you know, I'd argue that increasingly the the, the gold quadrant should be replaced with something like Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, using that sort of simple methodology, you've got kind of all of your bases covered across different environments where – you don't have to get brain damage thinking about, you know, what your different allocations are. And you can kind of, you know, depending on who you are, like you can rebalance back to that allocation every year, just keep things super clean. And, you know, you can keep, you can reduce that risk of portfolio skew where you get these like, you know, outsized changes in a certain asset creating excessive amounts of volatility in your portfolio over time. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. Time to welcome my new sponsor to the show, which is BCB Group, who provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a bank, a reliable one that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. So I've moved all my business banking across to BCB. And you know what? I could not be happier. It is so nice to finally be dealing with a bank which understands my business and understands Bitcoin and isn't putting hurdles in my way. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. And they also have this amazing fiat network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this. If you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out, then please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, we've got Ledger. 
the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you as a Bitcoiner to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. It's over four years now, and I'm still using that same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up is BlockFi. Now you can get up to $250 in Bitcoin when you join BlockFi. They've launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides the easiest way for you to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every purchase with no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards and every purchase. But if you're interested in finding out more and you do want to take out that bonus, you want to get that $250 in Bitcoin, then please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it's Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks, there are just too many ways to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again, because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you get to take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you get to distribute into different locations. And this is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, I have been a customer for over a year. You can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. Happy to answer your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. So let's talk about your thoughts on Bitcoin, because I went onto Twitter, I did a search for Colin Roche and uh, looked up the word Bitcoin, and it feels to me that it's a gradual warming. Yeah. You don't hate it, you don't love it, like, and I'm more interested in your view on Bitcoin than 90% of the people I interview, because if I say to them, they're like, yeah, I'm all in Bitcoin. I've sold everything. I've sold my fucking house. I sold my car. Like, all my money's in Bitcoin. And it's like, I'm similar to that. And we're all, we've all got this kind of moonshot, but we all understand the economics of Bitcoin. We yeah. understand the up and down, but like, we're all the fucking same. We're all degenerates and <laughs> taking a huge <laughs> moonshot. But I'm interested in yours because you are an asset manager. So you have a fiduciary responsibility as part you laugh, of that. You laugh, but you've been so right that like, and this is the thing, you've been so right that, you know, I, I'm by no, I've never been anti-Bitcoin or anti-crypto or anything really. I'm not anti, you know, just like I'm not a maximalist, I'm not anti-anything either. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I mean, you know, kind of, this is a little bit of a tangent, but to me, one of the beauties of Bitcoin and everything that's happening in the crypto space right now is that it validates a theory of money that I've always thought was a lot more accurate than um, some of the more like statist views of money, where a lot of people will argue that money has value because governments have guns and they'll, you know, and armies and they, mm -hmm. they kind of like you know, basically lock us up in this system and they construct it in a way that forces you to use it. And then they point the guns at you and they say, pay us taxes and, you know, that's it. Whereas there's a famous economist from UCLA named Hal Varian, whose theory of money basically was that, you know, why he wrote an article 
like 25 years ago asking, you know, why does that piece of paper in your wallet have any value? And he was questioning this theory that like a lot of people say that that money has value because it says, you know, debt of the Federal Reserve on it or something. And his theory was that it was all about a network effect, that basically a group of people, they get together and they agree whatever this thing is, it's money. And when enough people agree that that thing is money, it becomes money. Like cigarettes in a prison. Totally. So, it, you know, it, it it's, Bitcoin is, is so, you know, 10 years ago, working from that theory, I would have looked at, and I did look at Bitcoin and I would have said, well, this thing has a, a really low level of moneyness. The network effect just isn't that strong. And, you know, today you just, you can't deny it. You mm -hmm. cannot deny that that network effect is huge and powerful and- Passionate. Um, huh? Passionate. Well, but it's been right. Yeah. Like coming from a, coming from like a really like strict market-based perspective, like you cannot deny that this thing that did not exist 15 years ago has now become a multi-trillion dollar market. Like you're just, you can't ignore that thing. But from a theoretical money perspective, to me, it's just so much more interesting because it, to me, in a lot of ways, Bitcoin debunks like the, a lot of the statist theories of money where people argue that, like the MMT people argue that, you know, they argue that taxes drive money, that basically there's demand for money because people have to pay their taxes, which is probably true, I guess, to some degree. Like there's a, there's a function of a network effect in the sense that you know, when enough people agree to build a rules-based system around a currency like the dollar, I mean, yeah, people are going to use that thing because they trust it. They know that, you know, I know if you, if I borrow money from you and, you know, you fuck me over, I know I can take you to court. Mm -hmm. That's pretty powerful. Yep. You know, like that, that gives me trust in using that money. And that's, I guess, government-based to some degree, but to me, the network effect theory is so much more interesting and to me valid because it's it's so much more free market based. Well, Bitcoin is something similar, but it's different. You know, you say you can give me money if I fuck you over, you can take me to court. You have that protection of that yeah. structure. Bitcoin's protection is more mathematical. Mm -hmm. The thing I like about it is, is a different set of rules. The rules of consensus is that yeah. I know there will be 21 million and I know I can secure it myself. And I know by my mobile, my wealth is now mobile. I can take my Bitcoin to anywhere in the world and get liquidity. Mm -hmm. So it's just a different set of rules I get to play by. But that the network effect is based on. Yeah. On the people who also agree that those rules are good for Bitcoin. Well, that's part of it is that, you know, the government can't come in with Bitcoin and change the rules in the ninth mm. inning. You know, so like the last couple of years, I feel like a lot of people think the rules kind of got changed in, in the dollar system. Yep. And they did. Like the rules got totally shifted. And, you know, <clears> which is, I don't know, that another tangent of mine is that like I've always you know, being more of like a, a free market guy, I've always, I understand there's a need for government mm -hmm. and it makes, it, it makes practical sense. You know, like someone's got to be there to put out the fires and someone's got to be there to fight the wars at times. And, you know, there's a lot of this makes sense. You know, the, the purely free market system, um, it's just not a, a reality. You know, like that system doesn't exist anywhere. Like government's, Governments exist, I think, for 
more practical purposes than not. Yeah, I think and, I think it's two. There's another reason. There is the practical reasons. I also think, just think it's a natural evolution of how humans organize themselves. Yeah. You know, and we end up with one or two versions. We either end up with a dictator or we end up with some form of a democracy. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just humans need ways to organize themselves. And I think, yeah, I talk about the libertarian red button. If you could press that button and you could switch off government, it was gone, and everybody was then free to do as they choose, they would end up organizing themselves again. And we would probably end up with something very similar mm-hmm. to what we have now. But so what's interesting now is that and you see this increasingly in the United States. Like I, I would have argued 10, 15 years ago that one of the beauties of the reason the U.S. system has worked as well as it has is because it's actually a pretty fragmented system. It's yeah. a pretty decentralized system in terms of power structures. Yeah. Like Donald Trump can't come in and take over the whole government no matter how hard he tries. And he tried. And he tried. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it's interesting because, like, you do get – you do you have real checks and balances in a government like the United States, which is, which is good. It's also increasingly weird because we kind of see – you see periods where this power consolidates and big, big things happen. Um, like, I was really critical of Obama in 2008 when he passed the Affordable Care Act, mainly because I said there were a lot of things we could have done for the economy that – Instead of doing things for the economy, they came in and basically passed like the Affordable Care Act, which was like kind of like his big idea. And which, you know, I'm not a healthcare professional. Maybe that's a great idea in the long run. I have no idea. But at the time, like to me, that seemed like kind of a power grab. And you get instances of this where all three houses consolidate to one party, and then you get this big power grab and you get a big move that it pisses off the other 50%. And you get this kind of like, really like unproductive pendulum swing that seems to be going on where you've got power grabs increasingly and big policies coming from that side that it kind of in a lot of ways, like the founding fathers of the United States, they wanted us to disagree Mm -hmm. so that we'd have to come to agreements. And you see that happening less and less now, which is, you know, it obviously it's like one of the the weaknesses of having a system where people are hyper-involved in a really discretionary way. And I I wish that, especially with things like Federal Reserve policy and fiscal policy, that things were just more automated. That, And this is one of the beauties of the, the sort of like crypto-based system and the Bitcoin system is that things are just automated. They just are what they are. And you can't really mess with with that too much. You, there's not yeah. a lot of discretion involved in, you, there's no discretion involved in the monetary policy of Bitcoin. You know, whereas the monetary policy of of the dollar is basically like Jerome Powell coming out and being, you know, holding a finger up and being like, well, I think inflation is going to be 4% next year, so this is what we're going to do. And it's like, that's a bullshit approach to a mm. large degree. I tell you what I wish. I wish in the UK we were a republic. <laughs> and I, you know, this big push for states' rights recently, I think, is a really interesting part of what you have here in the US. Mm-hmm. There's a lot I disagree with, of course, but this ability just to move, just yeah. to, to get up and move and move to a new state. And, and I know it's not easy for everyone, but but the fact that you can because there's different rules that you can but I like that. And so that that is one of your strengths as well. We, we don't have that. I think your federal yeah. government has got too big. Yeah, I, and I, I 
I totally agree. Um, but and a lot of that is that function of this discretion that we have over the ability to change the size of the government at any given time. And I think there's a there's a really strong argument that the amount of discretion that we have, especially in periods of turmoil, is just way too much. Because here's the other thing. Policy in the U.S. is automated to some degree. Like, one of the things that a lot of people who aren't directly involved in, like, understanding economics and fiscal policy is that when, for instance, a recession happens, what happens basically is really simple. The the government runs a policy where they provide unemployment benefits, and the demand for unemployment benefits increases during a recession, and tax receipts decline. So by definition, the government's deficit is likely to increase because these automatic spending policies, we call them automatic stabilizers in economics, they they automatically increase. What do you do if, if that situation happens for you at home? For what? If you're running a business or running a home, what happens in that situation? You have to tighten your belts. Yeah. You maybe if you run a company, you have to let people go. It seems like government never shrinks, even at times of economic difficulty, which is, I think, one of the major problems of government. Mm-hmm. They don't have to keep to a budget like you do, Jeremy does, I do, like my company does. And that is one of the biggest problems. Yeah, and I don't know, you know, I don't know how you fix that. No. Because it's... I think you need more libertarians in politics and they hate politics. I saw it really like on the ground when I was, I built a home like two years ago. And when I was going through the permitting process, I saw the way that the incentive structure is designed inside of like the local government where... You, there's no incentive to ever shrink this thing. The only incentive is to increase this thing. And in a lot of ways, it's counterproductive to actually being able to build because it, as you expand this thing and it becomes more and more complex, obviously the rules get more complex and little, little things that should actually be really simple involved in building something as simple as a house become really, really complex. And then you get these great big problems like, you know, housing shortages in California where, you know, now people can barely even afford to live in the state and you have huge homeless problems and all these like knock-on effects that kind of like, you know, come off of these things that, you know, it's it's weird. I don't know how you fix that. Oh, fuck knows. You know, I don't, that, that's <laughs> one of the, it's one of the things I just, um, I hate thinking about politics in part because like, um, I don't have, I don't have good answers for how to fix this stuff. You know, like, does would blowing the whole thing up, you know, and trying to start from scratch, uh, would that be the right answer? Like, I don't know. I mean, or would that just like cause all these other problems that, like, well, this is this is goes back to the Bitcoiners. What the Bitcoiners think is that they've just found a way to route around the government. Now mm-hmm. it's like, okay, we can't control you. We can't control your size. We can't control what you're going to do with money. We can't control the influence that you'll have on us. You know, voting doesn't make a huge difference in a number of places, especially in the US. In some ways it does in the UK because, you know, the the power switches from one to the other every, you know, four to ten years, whatever. In the US, some places you live, it's always going to be red or it's always going to be blue. So your vote actually has, yeah. it has no meaning. But the Bitcoin is like, you know, we're just going to route around you. We're just going to create our own financial system. You know, our own fin- our own economy. And we're going to do this with Bitcoin, which is, again, coming back to why I'm interested to talk to you about it. But I think a good question for you would be, is you, you are somebody who manages other people's financial assets. How, how much are you being asked about Bitcoin now? And, and 
can you even talk about the advice you give with regards to Bitcoin? Because yeah. I did notice in one of your tweets, you know, I'd I, I, I see one tweet and there you are arguing Pierre Rochard, and the next one you're saying if you want to protect your wealth, you should, you'd had a list of things of which Bitcoin was one of them. Yeah. So you obviously believe in Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I mean, mm. I, I work with individuals and I mean, we have a, we have products that are publicly listed. So it's, I mean, I don't know. It's um, at a very like personalized level. Like I approach it the same way that I would, you know, talk about inflation with people. You have to, I mean, this stuff is highly, highly personalized. Like mm -hmm. nobody's financial situation is the same. A 25-year-old who's single, you know, with a high income it has a totally different financial picture than a 65-year-old who's retired with health problems living on a fixed income. So those two people's financial assets are going to be totally, totally customized in very different ways. So it's, it's hard to generalize about this stuff. I like approaching it. I like approaching it from this sort of very efficient market view or using something even as simple as like the Harry Brown approach because it just creates nice, clean um, buckets to, to asset allocation where you're not hyper exposed to anything. And I think that's the that's just where I tend to get worried because I'm, I spend my time worrying about other people's money and the volatility of other people's money. Like that's the thing that, like I approach financial management from a very like behavioral finance perspective. To mm -hmm. me, most people, they want all the upside and they don't think about the trauma of the downside and the risks of the downside. And when you, I mean, even just owning too much of like the NASDAQ, can be a huge, huge problem for somebody because people don't fully understand that when the shit hits the fan in the tech market, things can go really, really bad. You know, the, mm -hmm. the NASDAQ can fall, you know, what did it fall in 2000, 85% or something? Um, you know, these are, if you've got all your financial assets there, those are huge traumatic declines that even if they're just temporary events for somebody, behaviorally, they expose you to huge amounts of financial risk that for me, I just, I don't think most people need that amount of risk. Like you can build a really diversified portfolio that holds things like, you know, Bitcoin and these other like really volatile assets that don't overexpose you to the amount of volatility. So it- I've been through a 90% drawdown. It's rough. Yeah, I mean it, and you're lucky because if you're somebody that can go through that and weather it and know like, oh, this isn't ruining me financially. No, it nearly did. I was two weeks from losing my house. Like I've been through it. I'm okay now, but like I've been through it. And yeah, I'm a big Bitcoin believer and I might be overexposed, but I can handle another 90% drawdown yeah. because I have a solid business. But I do worry about people overexposing themselves to Bitcoin who aren't in that position. Mm -hmm. You know, I, for example, during this bull market, I took out a loan, a bit of fun. When the price dumped to 17K, I took out what was the biggest loan I could get at that moment from the bank to buy Bitcoin. And I did. I bought another two and a half Bitcoin. That was a great decision. Mm -hmm. Other people have come to me to, to say, you know, should I do the same? But I don't think they're in the same financial position. And it's yeah. super risky. And that, I mean, that's the thing. Like, if you're someone, let's say you're a college student mm. who, let's say you have no income, maybe you have student loans and, you know, you're borrowing money to speculate on, you know, whether it's GameStop or, or Bitcoin, it doesn't matter. Like, it's the, to me, 
an excessive amount of volatility in a portfolio creates not just the portfolio skew that we were talking about in your overall asset allocation, it creates a hyper amount of, for certain people, it creates a, just a hyper amount of behavioral risk. And it, that's the, the biggest risk is, do you find yourself in a situation like the 2018 drawdown where things are getting pretty hairy and you know, let's say like this is what happened in the financial crisis. A lot of the times when stuff like that's happening, there's a lot of other fucked up stuff happening. People are losing their job. And so like in 2008, 2009, when people were losing their homes, they weren't just losing their homes. Their stock market valuations were also falling. So their, their overall portfolio is falling and they're losing their job. And you get this kind of like in a real recession, you get this compounding effect from all of the stuff that's going on where the worst thing that can happen to somebody is being forced into liquidation of an of an asset, that, especially an asset that they believe in in the long run. Mm -hmm. So if you had been forced into a liquidating your Bitcoin position, like imagine the, you know, the real long-term loss at yeah. that. And that, you know, that could be a function of just being over leveraged. It could be a function of just your own behavior where you just, a lot of people, they get into a big drawdown like that and they just psychologically, you know, they reach a breaking point where they don't know what their max pain point is. And, you know, that's, that's one of the questions that I try to work with people on is what is your max pain point? Because for most people, their max pain point is it's much, much lower than they probably really think. Most people could not really sustain seeing their overall financial assets go down 50% for a sustained like three to five year period. They'd reach a breaking point in there at some point where they'd say, this isn't worth it. I just, I'm, you know, my personal life is a mess. My wife is screaming at me every day about the, you know, the portfolio value and I'm going to cut it loose just to make it the pain go away. And that's the psychology that happens to a lot of people inside of big, big drawdowns. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a critic of Bitcoin as much as I'm a, I would say that I can be critical of being overexposed, of being just overexposed to any financial asset. And Bitcoin just happens to be a really volatile asset that I yep. think you just have to be careful with. That's the, you know, my, my default view with it. What do you what do you think of uh, Bitcoin as an asset, though? And, and and a little bit more than that, actually. What do you think more of the Bitcoin community? Because I've seen I've watched you in discussions, yeah, and it seems like you are trying to offer pragmatic advice and getting trolled back. It sometimes, you know. Uh, where do you think? What do you think we have wrong? Um, you know, I I think that. There are so many good arguments for Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, a ton. Yeah. And, and I've made them on my website for years and years. There are also, I think, really bad ones. But this is why I really want to talk to you because I, I like, think you're more practical. Like, I think that, like, the Jack Dorsey thing, I thought that was that was a bad showing. The hyperinflation. The hyperinflation call. prediction. I just, um, maybe if we lived in Zimbabwe or something like that, to me, in the United States, the odds of, of actually getting hyperinflation in the United States, I think they're astronomically low. I wouldn't be shocked if people look back in five years and, you know, are saying that that was like an all-time bad prediction. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I 
there is there are times where I see arguments like that. And I think sometimes like like a lot of the Bitcoin people pushed back on me because I, I basically wrote I wrote a big research piece coming after that that basically said like, you know, the odds of of continued high-ish inflation are relatively high. Like I wouldn't be like I think we're gonna see six percent CPI well into next year. Okay. And then I think it's going to start to kind of moderate. It's not going to fall as much as the Fed thinks, but um, I don't think we're in this like escape velocity environment where inflation's like going to be six percent and then like 10, you know go 20, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I could end up being the one who's totally full of shit, but um, <laughs> you know, I I don't think that tends to be one of the best arguments for Bitcoin, at least Bitcoiners in the developed world. Yeah, you know, like. Um, Alex Gladstein and I interact a lot, and he's always making the argument, which is arguably one of the, like, strongest use cases for Bitcoin, that if you don't live in the United States or a developed world country, you almost need to, to own this thing. His arguments evolved to that, and he actually, he talks a lot about Tether as well. Yeah. Because I think Tether gives you stability for short term. Yeah. And Bitcoin gives you something to hold long term. It's funny. So this client I was having dinner with last night, he's from Istanbul. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. And his whole family lives in Istanbul. Yeah. And like, I mean, he lives in the States. He's lived in the States for a long time and he does very well. Um, and his family is lucky because he's been basically giving them financial advice to hold dollars and to hold, you know, kind of, you know, crypto related assets to some degree. But it's you know, it's it's a fucked up situation because even though his family is kind of financially insulated, everybody around him is getting nuked. Yeah. And that's, it's a horrific situation. And it's, I mean, this is mostly government driven. Dictator's going to dictate. Yeah. And so, um, you know, being in a situation like that, you know, if Jack Dorsey were running Twitter based in Istanbul, you know, i probably would be a lot more sympathetic to the view. Um, whereas here in the United States, I just, to me, the the high inflation argument as a Bitcoin hedge in the United States is not nearly as strong as it would be if I were somebody who was holding assets in another currency, mm -hmm. um, especially a government that was a dictatorship or a place where somebody can really come in and just kind of unilaterally like decimate the economy with a bunch of bad decisions, which is essentially what Erdogan has done in Turkey. Um, that Turkey situation is desperate. Um, I was talking about it, I think maybe even yesterday, saying that there is a chance places like, I mean, I could be completely wrong, but there's a chance, is, the chance that places like Turkey become dollarized but bottom up through people just converting their lira into tethers or yeah. other digital dollars. I mean, you've got to be looking for an escape valve there right now. It's really, you know, the... The rise of Bitcoin and stable coins is really interesting in the perspective of, of all of these emerging market economies because it, to some degree, it makes me wonder if the rise of those markets is accelerating the decline of a lot of those currencies in some ways. Because I can understand that. you've provided a, a viable alternative that It'll be really interesting to see what happens politically and economically in a lot of these economies in the next 10, 20 years, because in a way, Bitcoin is sort of forcing a more free market onto these emerging markets that, frankly, they need it. 
they need to evolve into a more free market-based system or a more um, democratic type of government that, at least to some degree relative to the way they are now, it decentralizes the power across it so that you can't just have some crazy guy come in and blow everything up because he's got some, you know, special fetish with certain economic policies, you know? Yeah, I was with uh, Matt Stoller in D.C., Recently. Do you know Matt Stoller? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and really interesting conversation. I like Matt. Uh, I like to listen to him talk about his like anti-monopoly position. Uh, but my point to him was that, well, because he he thinks Bitcoin should be banned. He thinks that's not the way to fix democracy is, is, is with something like Bitcoin. Huh. He thinks it's a threat to Bitcoin. But I said to him, that's also a monopoly position because actually ha- not, you know, allowing for Bitcoin yeah. allows for you know, a, a free market for money, and it put it's another check and balance on government. Mm-hmm. In that, if if economic policy as it is in uh, Turkey is being nuked right now, if the, if the currency is being nuked, you have that escape valve, and isn't that a great thing for people to have? Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, and Nick t- touched on Nick Carter yeah. touched on this the other day when you guys did your interview. That in a weird way, banning it makes it stronger mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, which is. Well, China. Yeah. I mean, what a Like, who would have thought? Yeah, I mean, I fully expect China to reverse their policy at some point, somehow. Mm -hmm. I fully, because they've just just nuked Bitcoin within China. People are still using it, but they've nuked it within China. But the rest of the world is carrying on. I, you know, China's surprise, you know, it was weird. I thought that, um... It looked like in the early 2000s and, you know, after the financial crisis that they were making more of a push towards kind of like open economies. And I don't know, it's one of those, like China's one of those outlier things where there's a lot of weird stuff going on in China where, I mean, shit, people think that supply chains are messed up now. Like, imagine what's going to happen to supply chains if China starts, you know, dropping bombs in Taiwan. And you've got the entire Pacific Ocean there becomes closed off. You know, that would be, in terms of like, like thinking of like outlier inflation risks and stuff, to me, that's one that really worries me. Um, But just a lot of the trends in China in general are worrisome because you see them kind of, you know, to me, like the, the development of the Bitcoin world in China was a good thing. Of course, yeah. Um, And so seeing them ban it, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's um, they seem to be backpedaling in a lot of ways that are counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends what Xi does. It, like, uh, I, I think I isn't his uh, term up for renewal soon? And I, I mean, I don't understand Chinese politics. I don't even know. I, th- I, I, I think it is, and you know, he's he's standing on the precipice with the Chinese economy now. It's like, does he want to stamp his you know period in time and have his statues around China, or does he want to hand? This, this fucked economy over to somebody else. I don't know. I know they're pulling back on their Belt and Road Initiative because they don't have the money now to to lend out. Yeah. It's a whole other discussion. Yeah, you could <laughs> literally yeah. talk to somebody who's an actual expert about China. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've got um, we've got Lynn Alden in tomorrow and she's an expert on everything. So oh, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll be, uh, I'll be asking her. Uh, yeah, so like, just a final question just to round this all up. Um, I, I think, you know, it is a weird time. You are a pragmatic capitalist. You know, if you were advising people now, people listening to the show saying, you know, thinking about you know, the economy and inflation, what's your kind of like best advice you give to people right now? Times like this, I think that 
you, with all the uncertainty, it makes a lot of sense to, to be really broadly diversified across things because the, the range of outcomes, I mean, I would argue that the range of possible outcomes right now are more uncertain than maybe they've ever been. Mm-hmm. Like, you could have on the one end of the spectrum, I could be totally wrong about my inflation prediction that, you know, maybe we are in this period of escape velocity where, you know, you get 6% CPI going into, you know, Q2 next year. And then all of a sudden, like, it just kind of starts to tick higher and higher and higher and higher. That could totally happen. I don't, I wouldn't put like, you know, high probabilities on it, but I wouldn't say it's 0%, certainly. Could the market crash? Could, you know, could the real estate market fall completely apart in the next couple of years? Wouldn't surprise me. You know, so I don't, you know, there's periods in in the economy where I think you can look at things and you can like 2015, like a period like that, you can kind of look at and say like, ah, you know, outside of like a pandemic or something that's just like a, you know, a, a total like, you know, blind shot over your shoulder or something like that that looked pretty boring. And it was like, ah, you know, there's nothing crazy going on with government policy. Like the economy is just kind of chugging along. And so this cut, like I, for a lot of the period of like 2010 to 2020, I was like, we're just in a muddle through period. That's just the way things are going to be. It's just people are going to get up and go to work and build things. And it's nothing's going to be spectacular, but it's, you know, it's not going to fall apart. Whereas right now you can look at things and you can make valid arguments in like any direction. I could see things muddling along for a little bit. I could also see things hyperinflating. I could see things deflating. And so like just using that like range of of probable outcomes, like to me, it leaves me being like, I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen. The range of outcomes is so wide that for me personally, like I want to own a little bit of everything. And that's the way that I would approach the world over the next five to 10 years. And that way you kind of insulate yourself from, you know, all these range of outcomes, whether it's something that ends up being hyper extreme in one direction or the other, you know, you're pretty all weathered from, from all these things. Awesome. All right. Tell people where they can follow you, where they can buy your book. Twitter, uh, Cullen Roche. Uh, and then uh, my website is Pragmatic Capitalism. It's uh, pragcap.com. That's where I write most of my sort of like weekly musings and bullshit narratives about <laughs> what I think is going on. But uh, those are probably the two best places. So, um, Well, listen, I appreciate you coming on. Maybe yeah. we'll do this another six months to a year and we, we can reflect and go, oh, this is what happened. Yeah. But well, uh, when you're in California, you should come through and um, well, I love, I'll show you the, the North San Diego area. It's pretty awesome. I, I, well, I love, I love the whole stretch of California, each bit for different reasons. Yeah. I mean, I haven't been to San Francisco much recently, uh, but I'm a big fan of LA. I love San Diego. If you I like Orange LA, County. you'll love San Diego because it's basically, San Diego is a smaller, just a lot more laid back version of LA, basically. Yeah, I like it. I like the food down there. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, listen, thanks for coming in, man. Yeah. Take awesome. care. Thanks for having me on. All right, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 